we started something two weeks ago in the last time that I was here, which is to lay a foundation for where we're going. And where we're going is going to be transformational. It will transform this church. It will transform your life if we will listen and if we will be open. Because God is at work. God is at work because there's a sense of urgency that I feel because of the times we're in. And we have to understand that God's not just sitting in heaven watching what's going on. He's actively involved in the channels and avenues that he has. And the channel and avenue that he has more than anything else is the body of Christ. And God is preparing us because he wants to work in us and through us. And we just have to be open and willing. And that's, we're open and willing, God will work in us. Hebrews chapter 12, I'm not going to go back over. In fact, what we covered last time, I was only planning to spend a few minutes on. But the first part of Hebrews chapter 12, is all of the, most of it is about how to receive God's correction. Because this book is a, basically a book of correction by whoever wrote it, Paul or whoever wrote it. We know it was inspired by the Holy Spirit. And it's bringing correction to Jewish believers. And, and we're not going to go through all that again, but it talks about how, to, having brought the correction, it talks about how to receive it and how not to receive it. And that's over in verses 5 through about verse 11 or so. And, and we went, spent time on that because what God wants to do in our lives now is to bring about adjustments. That's a better word than correction adjustments to get things that are right in our life. And it's not always what you may think it is. Sometimes God, you've got to know God knows what we need adjusting better than we do, or at least the priority of it. And I, God's just been working on me and presenting some things to me that as I shared with you last time, I ran across a book, and I'll share more about that with you down the road, a book that would absolutely confronted me. And the problem was it was right because it uses Scripture. But I can tell what I'm resisting because my first instinct is to come up with scriptures to refute it. And my mind has still got enough legal training in there that I can do that. And then I was, I can't do that. How can I? I don't want to argue with God about what God's trying to tell me. That's kind of not smart. And so, but my first, next instinct, if I can't argue with it, is to close the book and put it away. I don't want to look at it. And I'll be honest with you, I haven't looked at it yet. But I know I need to. I'm carrying it in my briefcase. Because I, 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 I'm, I'm just being as honest with you as I know how to help you to face what God wants to adjust in your life also. I know I need to do it, so I'm going to do it. I may get it done by next week so I can come back and share some progress with you in it. But it's, I, I don't, it's some things I don't want to look at because I'm afraid of what it's going to mean or cost me. And yet it's God trying to bless me. It's God trying to strengthen me. It's God. And this is what we learned last time. Because God is our Father and He loves us. And, and we struggle with that sometimes because I had a father that didn't correct out of love all the time. And I just, you know, he corrected with fear and the wrong kind of fear because he was angry and he was getting angry and sometimes explosive. And I would just want to hide from it. So it's hard for me to learn how to receive loving correction because those two words don't compute in my mind. So I have to renew my mind to what the Bible says about God. And the Bible's anointed to do that for us. And so these are some of the key scriptures that I have learned, learned to live with. And I shared a little bit of this with you on Father's Day when I shared some of my own testimony about turning to God as my Father to bring wholeness into my life. Well, part of that wholeness is to learn how to receive correction because in Hebrews chapter 12, in the, around verse 5, it says, because God loves us, He corrects us which means he does it out of love, motivated by love. 
whereas so many fathers are correct out of anger, which is selfish. Their motive is they're embarrassed, they're, 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 they're ashamed because that child is acting up, which is evidence that they've not done their job right. But the, the root of the problem is I'm angry because of what it means about me and how it reflects on me. And then that's what we communicate to the ch- our child. But God's not like that. God is always motivated by love. God's not embarrassed. God's never ashamed. God loves you and me. And because He loves you and me, He'll meddle in our lives. Because He wants to see us free. In many cases in our lives, things aren't working right because something's out of order. I've had people come to me and say, my finances are just, you know, I'm really, we're really struggling. We're doing everything we know how. We're, we're tithing. We're doing all that's right. I said, well, how's your marriage? What do you mean, how's our marriage? What's that got to do with it? Very often, your finances are a reflection of something else that's going on in your life. Something's out of order. God is a God of order. And if things are not in order, it will, get, it will begin to show up somewhere. It's like if you run the washing machine and you put rugs in there and they all end up on one side when they go through that final spin cycle, that washing machine may start moving around the room. It's gonna, you can, you're going to know something's wrong. It's going to make a noise. Why? That's a sign something's out of order. So what do you do? You open it up and you balance it out again so that it can function normally. And often, not always, but often when things aren't going right and we're doing what we know to do and it's still not working right, that's a time to sit back and say, Lord, show me is everything where it needs to be in my marriage, in my relationship, in the things that are important to God. So often we fret about and spend all our time on the things that are of light that are important to us and we neglect those things that are important to God, which are relationships. We get so concerned with being right and God never holds us accountable for being right on issues. He holds us accountable for walking in love. When you walk in love, that changes how you see things. Well, that wasn't where I was planning to go this morning, but it was good. Anyway, we needed some of it. So that's what we talked about last time. And then we went over into these verses in chapter 12, which we'll pick up with again because this is our launching pad this morning. Around verses 18 to 24, Paul, the writer of Hebrews, is referring to God's way of correcting the children of Israel in the wilderness, and his way to do that was to come down on the mountain in all of his power and glory so that the mountain shook and there was lightning and thunder. And and he wanted to reveal his power to them and his majesty so that they would reverence him, they would fear him in a healthy reverence, and therefore they would not sin. And remember I taught you what they did is they saw his power and they ran from it and told Moses, we're going to stay in our tents. We're going to just go to church by watching TV. <laughs> and I know you're here. But I mean, we're, this is, you know, we're going to do it our way, not God's way. And we, but we're going, to, we're going to obey Him, but we don't need what He said. We're going to do it because we're convinced we can do this. And of course, we've discovered they failed. Because God knows what we need to be prepared. We don't. And so, that's the first part of that saying this is, we've not come to Mount Sinai, to Mount Sinai. We've not come to a mountain, to a God that's come down in thunder and lightnings. But we've come to Mount Zion, Z-I-O-N, which represents Jerusalem, which represents the kingdom of God that we're part of today, which is filled with the saints that have gone on before us, which is filled with, with the, the blood of the Lamb. But it's still, it's still the same God. 
And then he goes on to say this. This is where we're going to pick up today. Verse 25. See that you do not refuse him who speaks. Isn't it nice to know God speaks to us? We have a God who speaks to us, and God is speaking to this church. See that you do not refuse him who speaks, for if they did not escape who refused him when he spoke on earth, how much more shall we not escape if we turn away from him who speaks from heaven? He's talking about God speaking into our lives, and they turned away from him. How much worse will it be for us who has a God that's our Father who loves us if we turn away from what He wants to say to us? And He's going to show us why. Verse 26. Whose voice at that time on Mount Sinai shook the earth. But now He has promised, yet once more, I will shake not only the earth but also heaven. That's not heaven where God's throne is. That's the spiritual atmosphere around this earth. Now verse 27. Now this yet once more indicates the removal of those things which are being shaken as of things that are made and that the things which cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom which cannot be shaken... Let us have grace by which we may serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear for our God is a consuming fire. What's he saying there? What's this all about? Just as God came down on Mount Sinai to appear before them and the mountain shook, God has promised that there's coming a day when his voice is going to speak and there's going to be a shaking, a whole lot of shaking going on. There's going to be a, he's going to cause a shaking of things. And those things which come from God, those things which are out of his kingdom and based on his kingdom, will not be able to be shaken. And those things which do not come from him will be shaken. And we used the example last time of, of, of spring cleaning when you take a rug and you drape it over a clothesline and you take some baseball bat or something, or they used to have instruments that did this, and you beat the rug to get the dirt out. And I thought of that because that Saturday I had just done that with, a, with a, an old rug that I, wanted to, that I had gotten from, uh, from my mother's house when she moved, and I had stored it in my basement, and now I was going to put it in our living room. And so before I did that, I wanted to make sure I got all the dust or dirt that accumulated out of it. So I not only swept it, but I beat it. And hitting it, what I found happened is there were particles of dirt and dust that had been attached to the fibers that somehow the vacuuming didn't get out. But when I hit it, it separated out the dust and the dirt that was not part of the rug from the true part of the rug that did not come out because it could not come out because it was part of the rug. God is saying because He loves us, He will cause a shaking. And what that shaking will do is it will cause us to discover what's in our life, what our life is based on that's not come from the kingdom of God, from what's in our life that has come from the kingdom of God. And why would God do that? Because God wants us to have our lives established on a foundation that is solid and secure so that no matter what happens, it doesn't shake us. And God does this to prepare us, to strengthen us, 
and to prepare us. And then we ended, we don't have to turn there, we ended over in Hebrews, uh, 2 Corinthians, excuse me, 13, 1 through 5, where Paul has been correcting the church at Corinth with some attitudes that they had because they had criticized him. And basically, by the time this letter was written, they'd gotten so bad they wouldn't let him in the church that he founded and over which he was an apostle because they said he wasn't spiritual enough. They said he was harsh with them. When he wrote letters to them, he actually had the nerve to correct them and to speak about things in their life, and they thought that that was not his business and that they thought he was weak because, he was, uh, because of the, the way he did some things. And, and, and because they, so they were criticizing the Apostle Paul to the point that they said he wasn't spiritual enough to come into the church and that they were more spiritual because the gifts of the Spirit were flowing so freely and they saw things so clearly, and yet Paul wrote that first letter to them and said they were carnal. They were just like unsaved men and women in the way they lived their lives. You could look at their lives and not tell that they were even saved. They couldn't tell that Christ lived in them because they lived outwardly the same way that they lived before they were saved, the way the society lived that they lived among. And Paul brought correction to them. And so Paul ends this, this letter, 2 Corinthians, by basically saying, you know, so you're basically saying that I'm not saved. He said, well, I know Christ is in me. And then he says, he challenges them. He says, test yourselves to see if you're in the faith. Check yourself out. So we looked at that scripture last time to realize we need to test, and this is really what we're talking about. We need to test what is the foundation of my life. What what have I been building my life on? Because if there is a shaking that's coming, and it may already be started, because not always do a shake, does a shaking come as a great of great earthquake, sometimes there's seismic rumblings that are under the ground. I have a brother who's a seismologist. His job is to measure those rumblings that are under the ground, and they drop him sometimes on the edges of volcanoes and things like that to measure certain things. And he's told me that you can, his, the instruments can tell that there's rumblings going on before you can feel them in the ground. And I believe there's rumblings in the spirit. There's rumblings in the Spirit, and we're going to look down the road at the signs that Jesus talks about to tell us. But the point is, what what does God want to do in our lives to prepare us? Well, the first thing is to check out the foundation. It doesn't do any good to have a solid building if the building's not built on a solid foundation. So when we're talking about a foundation this morning, we're talking about the foundation of my life. What is my life built on? What is my life built on? Well, before we do that, let's talk about what a foundation is. A foundation is the, 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 the base on which you build some building. Let's just talk in the natural. I've shared with you before, some, and I believe it was part of God's preparing me for, for what I do, is, is that when I was a lawyer, at least two times I can remember, and maybe three times, my office was placed in a situation so that it overlooked a construction site for a major, a major office building. I worked downtown Boston, and my office, one of my first offices, was next to 100 Federal Street, which was the big building that goes up out and comes back up again. It's about 30-some years old now. But I watched them build that, I watched them build that building. When, we were, when I worked in Tulsa in a law office, I watched a, a, 40, a skyscraper go up, skyscraper for Tulsa. And I've watched some others. And I watched the care and the time they put into the foundation. 
The building in Tulsa, and I've shared this with you before, was amazing because before they went up, they went down four stories. They dug down into the ground four stories into the ground. And then the first thing they did is, of course, they shored the sides up so they didn't fall in. And then they poured a foundation, a floor, to this basement. And then they poured this, this block of cement that was two stories high. And I sort of, what are you doing? Because I walk past this every day, and I kind of look in there, and I'm just curious. What in the world are you doing? And so I asked the senior partner in the firm, because he was very much involved or aware of what was going on in the city. He says, they're going to build a 40-story office building that's behind a 10-story building, and it's going to go up 11 stories and cantilever out, which means it's going to stick out at the 11th floor over that 10-story office building, and then they're going to go up another 30 stories. I said, then why are they building this block down there? He says, because what they're going to do is they're going to tie the building into that block so that it doesn't tilt forward because it doesn't have 10 stories underneath the front part of it. So it needs to be counterbalanced so it doesn't tip forward. Not only that, but even in a windstorm. I've worked in these office buildings where you can feel the ones in Boston. On a, on a windy day in Boston, you can feel it going like this. In fact, I'm told on the top floor on a really windy day, the pictures will move a little bit. And I said, what does that mean? Does that mean we're going to fall over? He says, no, they've designed it so that there's some give to it. But the reason the building is going to be solid and secure is because it's tied into a foundation. So the principle is of construction, one principle of construction, is that the strength and the quality of the foundation determines what you can build on top of it. You can build anything on top of it. It's how sturdy and how strong is it going to be in a storm. So the foundation determines what you can build on top of it. My grandfather on my father's side sixty years ago bought some property literally on the shore in South Jersey in a community that was just beginning to emerge and there weren't a lot of weren't a lot of houses there and most of them there were summer houses but he wanted to make his in his retirement home so he bought this plot of land next to the beach and at that time the building code was you could just pour a slab and you could build your house on the slab and the neighbors around us did that. But my grandfather, who was a businessman, was far-sighted enough in realizing this is not a summer cottage for us. This is where I'm going to live. So what he hired the contractor to do was to take, and I don't remember how many, telephone poles and to drive them down, because this is South Jersey, it's sand, to drive them down into the sand, and then to bolt the first floor to those pilings. Pour a slab, 
but bolt the building to these pilings. I remember somewhere in, was in the late 1950s. I was still only seven or eight years old. Back then, they didn't have the early warning. Noah and all these systems out there where, you know, the alarm goes off on your phone and says, this is coming. And I remember being down there in the late fall, waking up in the morning, hearing water. Now, we're by the ocean, so I'm used to hearing water, but this was in the backyard, not in the front. And I looked out the window, and this house was surrounded by the ocean overnight, unexpectedly. There were waves breaking out, and I remember seeing telephone poles floating by with pieces of houses attached to them. These are images I've never forgotten. There was a house to our right, and there was a house to our left. And when this storm was over, those houses were gone because they were built on a slab, which by the standards of that day was enough. But it wasn't enough to forestand because this was a hurricane that hit us. We were surrounded by the ocean for two days. At the end of those two days, I went some, we went, were able to get out and we drove up to the end of this island that this was on. And I watched, I'll never forget this, I watched a wave come in under a cottage, lift it up off its foundation, set it down, and go out. And then I saw another wave come in, lift the entire cottage up, and take it out to sea. I've never, ever lost my respect for the power of the ocean in a storm. The house that stood through all of this was my grandfather's house, which is still standing today. We don't own it, but it was still standing. I wish we did. It's worth a lot of money now. It's still standing today. <laughs> it's still standing today. The foundation that you build your house on determines how well it will withstand a shaking or a storm. We lived in Oklahoma for four years, and we were there for five or six months. It was in the spring. There's this terrible thunderstorm comes through. And after it was over, I went out to get some milk or something, and I'm coming in. It was a Sunday night. I'll never forget. And just had the radio on, and they said, we think that was a tornado. And I think, I never dawned on me about tornadoes. And I began to ask around and found out not only were we in the tornado belt, this was the buckle of the tornado belt. It was called Tornado Alley. More tornadoes came through Tulsa than anywhere else. And the problem was the houses that were newer there, most of the newer houses were built on slabs. And the safest place you can be in a tornado is in the basement. But we didn't have a basement. So when they came over, we had to hide in other places in the house. So a basement can also be a place, a foundation can also be a place of refuge, of hiding, of protection in a storm. Because it's below the ground and whatever up is going, whatever may be above the ground may go, but the foundation will stay secure. A tornado is not going to uproot a basement foundation. So the foundation is a very important thing in a building. 
And why do we pay so much attention to the foundation of our buildings, but very little attention to the foundation of the most important building we'll ever construct, and that's our lives? Because your life is like a building. It's built in stages. It's built in floors. The first floor, maybe a second floor, and I don't know where you are in the construction of your life. And you're the one that's building it. You're the one that's choosing the materials. You're the one that's choosing the contractor. You're the one that's choosing the design. You're the one that's choosing it. Second Corinthians 13.5 challenges us to check out the building of our life right now. And the way you do that is just look, how, do you, how, how comfortable is it? How secure are you? How happy are you? The Bible uses the term blessed. It kind of covers all of that. But when we say blessed, we don't quite know what that means. How well do you sleep at night? Do other people look at you and say, boy, I wish I had a life like yours? That's evidence of the kind of life we've been building for ourselves. And we've just read that God's Word says there's going to come a time when there will be a shaking coming, whether it's a hurricane, a tornado, an earthquake, whatever it is in the natural, but in our lives there will be things come. And according to God's Word, because He loves us, that's good because it will help us to discover what we build into our lives that's of His kingdom and what we build into our lives that's not of His kingdom. Because when the shaking comes, what's not of His kingdom is the part of our life that gets shaken. And I believe God allows sometimes a prelude of this so we can even get a sense right now. And just as we look at our own lives, what in our lives looks shaky? What in our lives right now looks like I can barely hold on, I can barely make it? What in my life right now looks like I don't, I'm, I'm, wear, I'm worn out, I can't do this anymore? Because that's something that I'm trying to sustain and I'm trying to hold up. And if I've got the right foundation, I don't have to sustain it and I don't have to hold it up because the foundation will sustain it and the foundation will hold it up. That's the purpose of a foundation, is to, hold, is to hold it up and to hold you steady and rooted in the storms of life. So what we're going to do is we're going to begin together to examine the foundations of our lives and we're going to look at what the Bible says the foundation of our life should be. But before we do this, let's go back. Let's go back. We're still in Hebrews 13. Let's go, go back in these verses, because he tells us a secret here. Verse 27. Yet now this once more indicates the removal of those things which are being shaken. So God wants to bring shaking. And again, it's not sickness and disease. It just, you know what I'm talking about. So that he can remove those things, we can remove those things that are not helpful, that are not sturdy, that will not last. See, these neighbors of my grandfather, the day before the hurricane hit, they looked at their house 
and they looked at his house and there was no difference. They were enjoying their house. And outwardly, they couldn't tell there was a problem. They couldn't tell there was a defect. They couldn't tell there was a weakness. And the only way they found that out is when the storm came. Unfortunately, in that case, it was too late. And I'm sure when they rebuilt their house, they didn't rebuild it the same way. They learned their lesson to rebuild it with a solid foundation. It's interesting, in California, they know they're on a fault line. They know it's not whether there's going to be an earthquake, it's when it's going to come. And as a result, they changed. There were some, some terrible earthquakes back in the late 70s, and the, some buildings fell in. There was a, an ordinance passed in San Francisco in that area that requires that buildings now be built earthquake-proof. Well, there's no building that's earthquake-proof, but it's designed so that the foundations and the building can be flexible and move when the earth begins to move underneath it. They designed the foundation around where they live. They've designed the foundation in anticipation that there is going to be a shaking coming. And so the writer says that, here's, we, we can go on. The writer says this. Now this is good news, so just take a deep breath. Indicates that the removal of those things, verse 27, that are being shaken as of things that are made and things which cannot be shaken may remain. What's that talking about? Things that, can be, that have been made are the things of this earth. It's referring to, if you go back to chapter 11, he talks about, by faith we understand what the worlds were formed by the word of God, so that they were made out of things, that's visible, is made out of things which cannot be seen. In other words, this world that we know of, that we consider life, that we consider the natural part of life, it's the things you can see, the things that are most of the issues of our life, all these things were created out of a realm, the spirit realm, that you cannot see. This is why the Apostle Paul says, and we may talk about this a little later, the Apostle Paul says, for we walk not by, we walk by faith, we, we, we walk, we look not at the things that are seen, but at the things that are not seen. In other words, we are to live our lives as Christians with our focus, not trusting in and looking at this world that can be seen, which is the natural things of life. Let's get down to where we live. Your life does not consist of your car, your house, your vacation home. It does not consist of the clothes you wear. In fact, Paul says and elsewhere that life does not consist of the food we eat or the clothes we wear. That's why Jesus said in Matthew chapter 6, why be anxious about them? But true life consists of the eternal things. The things that that we invest so much of our life, so much of our time, so much of our energy, so much of our concern in things that are not eternal, that we're going to leave here. And you know, because the secret that Jesus gave for insight 
into what we're really, where things really are in our life is what we're anxious about. In Matthew 6, he's talking about what are you anxious about? If you're anxious in your life right now about food and clothing, and, and that just represents other things. If you're anxious about where you're going to live, if you're anxious about your car, you need to examine, your, what am I anxious about in my life? What do I fret about? What do I worry about? And then ask yourself, are they eternal? Are these eternal things? What are the eternal things? The condition of my soul. What are the eternal things? The condition of my family's soul and my neighbor's soul. What are, what are the eternal things? Because what the writers here are saying, what's going to be shaken are things that are made out of this world. And I'm not just talking about your car. It's the things of this world. And yet, what do we invest our lives in? What is it you can't live without? What is it is, what are you fretting about? What is it that if something goes wrong, what do you turn to? What do you look for comfort for in? What do you, what do you turn to? What is your security based in? Is it your retirement fund? Is it your job? Is it your talents? The obvious things are money. The obvious things are, 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 are things. I had a boss I worked for once a long time ago that had this model when it was on the bumper sticker of his car. He says, he, he who dies with the most toy wins. That's cute, but it's not true. But there's a more subtle thing we base our life on. There's a more subtle way that we build our lives on things that can be shaken. And that's when we build our life on our confidence in ourselves. And this can be tricky because there are some people that it's obvious they're confident in themselves because of the way they walk and they strut around and you can tell they have it going and they know they do. They're just, you know, they're, they're a confident, self, they're a self-made man, self-made person. That's exactly what Satan was peddling in, in Genesis chapter 3, was to be self-made. And so there are people that are obviously, you know, this, this strong person in themselves. But there's another type that's like that that's much more subtle. Outwardly, they're not confident. Outwardly, they may be timid. But inwardly, what they're really trusting in is their ability to get themselves to hold on, to get themselves through the situation. I was raised in a family that was like that. We weren't outwardly bold, but we were told to develop an inward self-confidence, an independence. I can do this myself. It's in a child. The child reaches a certain age, and you try to do No, I can do this myself. And we think, Isn't that cute? They're developing self-confidence. No! <laughs> They're developing independence. Confidence is one thing, Independence is something else. Independence says, I can handle this myself. I don't need God. I don't need you until I really run out of myself and then I'm going to turn to God or you. But in the meantime, I'll handle it myself, which means I'm building my life on confidence in me, confidence in what I know. I've known children that are just, you know, they figure that I can get myself out of anything. And some of us have grown up like that. 
I can handle it. I can get myself out of it. Some way, and, and sometimes the smarter people are and the more clever they are, the more, the more they, want to, they have this confidence, I can somehow work my way through this. I know this is bad, but I can handle this myself. And I've had to deal with that in my life. I can, I can somehow figure a way out of this. I can somehow, and what that means very subtly is I'm building my life on confidence in me. That my foundation is that I can handle this. For some of us, I, I can hold on long enough. I may not be able to fix it, but I can hold on long enough. And it's trusting in my own strength, my own ability. And my question for me today and my question for you today is, how you doing? How's your building look like? How does your life, is it tilting over? Are there cracks in it? Are the windows out? Are some of the floors abandoned? What's your life like right now? Now, obviously in this world we have challenges, we have tribulation, there are issues, but the question is, how are you handling it? Not only how are you handling it, are, is, it is it moving you from what God's called you to do? One of the wonderful things I like about studying the Apostle Paul, I mean, obviously Jesus is my hero, but after him it's Paul. I can relate to the Apostle Paul. But I looked at him, and this is a man that learned. He didn't get there overnight, but he learned that no matter what happened around him, it didn't move him. That doesn't mean he didn't have emotions. I'm not saying God wants us to be without emotion, but not to be moved by them. So much of the church today, so many of us are controlled by our emotions. I'm feeling good today. Praise God. What a beautiful day it is. And then something goes wrong. You know, we've had a wonderful time in here. We go out and there's a flat tire. What happened to the God who's awesome? What happened to the God that can do anything? I came back, got my mail, and there was a letter from the Massachusetts Department of Revenue. They recalculated my taxes. Praise the Lord. I will bless the Lord at all times. <laughs> Let's take that as an example because there would have been a time I wouldn't have opened it for a while because it didn't feel like there was a check inside. <laughs> and I open it and I see this and it's like immediately fear grips you and it's like, and because the fear is I'm going to lose money. I won't be able to make it. If I lose money, I'm not going to make it. If I'm going to go broke, I can't make it, which means my foundation is on the amount of money I have. The foundation is on what's in my bank account. The foundation is on my income. The foundation of my life is based on those things and not on the God who can do all things. We'll get here later on, not not now, but Exodus chapter 20. Don't turn there. But Exodus chapter 20, God has called Moses up on the mountain after he came down and the people scattered. God comes down on the mountain and he speaks to to Moses what we call the Ten Commandments. But it starts out by saying, I am the Lord God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. You shall have no other gods before me. He didn't start out by saying, you shall have no other gods before me. He reminded them of who he was as their God. 
I'm the God who brought you out of that bondage you couldn't get yourself out of. I'm the God who supernaturally caused Pharaoh, the mightiest ruler on the face of this earth, to let you go when he didn't want to let you go. I'm the God who, when Pharaoh changed his mind and sent 600 chariots down to destroy you and you were caught behind between those chariots in the Red Sea, I'm the God that brought a pillar of fire by night and a cloud by day to keep those chariots away from you until I parted the sea and made you go across on dry land. I'm the God that brought water out of a rock. I'm the God that drops food to you every morning. I'm the God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. That's the God. That's why you should have no other gods before me. Build your life, your foundation on the God that brought you out of the land of Egypt. That's what God was saying to him. And the foundation of everything which we're going to discover is the revelation of who God is. Not who we think he is. Not who we want him to be but who he is. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 7. We're going to look now at what God says is the right foundation that will not be shaken. Matthew chapter 7, verse 21. Not everyone who said... Now, he's just finished what we call the Sermon on the Mount. He's just finished talking to them about what the kingdom of God is like, what's blessed in the kingdom of God, the poor in spirit, which is those who are not proud and haughty, those that need mercy, those that are meek, those that are pursuing righteousness, those that are merciful to others, those who are pure in heart, those who are peacemakers, and those who continue to serve Him even if they're persecuted. Then he talks about the right attitude to have about fasting and prayer. And he talks about not doing things for the public's attention, but for God. He's talking about the foundation. He's talking about not building your foundation on what other people think of you. He says the Pharisees and the Sadducees, they do things so that they, they do the right things, but they do them. Their motive is so that they'll be liked by other people. They'll be respected by other people. So what they're building their foundation on is what other people think of them instead of God and their relationship with Him. He goes through the principles of the law and says the standard of the kingdom of God is not what the law wrote, which is basically retribution. Whatever's done to you, you can do back to somebody else. But instead, it's attitudes of the heart so that you can be like your Father who's in heaven. And having gone through those, he talks about discerning the true people speaking into your life that are of God and the people that are not. And he says you can judge them by their fruits of their lives. You can tell what their heart is like by the fruit that's been born in their life. You can tell what their foundation is like by the life, the building that's been built. They've built on top of that foundation. And having said all that, he comes to verse 21. 
Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven. Wow. Wow. We're in a generation that's pretty much been taught, if you just say Jesus is Lord, that's it. That's all you got to do. But Jesus says, just to call him Lord isn't enough. Not everyone who calls me Lord, Lord shall enter the kingdom of heaven. But he who does the will of my Father in heaven. Many will... Many. Many. He's already talked about in verse 13 that the way is broad and easy that leads to destruction. But the way that leads to life is narrow and difficult, challenging. Many, many will say to me in that day, so there is a day when we're going to give an account. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name, cast out demons in your name, and done many works in your name? Now, how can that be wrong? They're calling him Lord, and they're doing wonderful things, even miracles, and they're doing them in His name. What can be wrong with that? Look at the verse before we just read. But He who does the will of my Father, not He who does works for my Father. Listen carefully to that difference. Jesus says, He who does the will of my Father, not he who does works for my Father. Many of you will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, did we not do these wonderful works in your name for you? But the issue is not what we do for him. Why can that be bad? It's not in and of itself, but it's not enough. The issue is not what we do for Him. Because when we do things for Him, we get to choose what it is we do for Him. Well, this is what I want to do. I don't have time to go through the, this. I've described it to you before. But I'd always knew there was, known there was a call in my life. And when I went through Bible school and got into ministry, I was frustrated, confused. I had no confidence. And God had to take me through a process by which he took me out of the ministry, had me sit under this guy named Sam Smith, who cleaned my clock. <laughs> and what God had to deal with me is I was in the ministry for two reasons. One, because God called me, and also because I wanted to be. It was a mixed motive. And in the kingdom of God, mixed anything mixed with God is profane. The Beatitude says, the pure in heart shall see God. I had a mixed motive and God out of His infinite love, which is what we're talking about, corrected me to do that. He had to take me out of the ministry 
set me back in law and sit me here in one of these blue chairs for four years before I did anything. Until God began to process this through me. Until my only motive was to do what He wants to do. What He wants in my life. Until I was willing to lay everything down and to surrender. Isn't it interesting that God gave Abraham Isaac. And God made Abraham clear to him, you are to believe me and I'm going to give him to you because Isaac, Abraham tried to do it a different way and produced Ishmael. And God says, no, no, it's not your efforts. It's not my will with your efforts in it. Because that's what Ishmael represents. Ishmael represents, oh God, I know what you want. You want us to have a son. So this believing you for is too hard, so we're going to help you out. And then he presented Ishmael to God and said, See, we've done your will. And God says, That's not my will. You've, you've done what I've wanted, but you've not done it my way. And then Abraham finally gets this straight and, he, and believes God, and God gives him Isaac. And now when Isaac becomes a young man, God does this strange thing. He says, I want you to sacrifice him to me. I want you to bring him up on an altar, lay him on an altar, drive a knife in his heart, and then burn him as an offering to me. And the incredible thing about how Abraham had grown in faith, because he wasn't there to begin with, is he perfectly obeyed what God told him to do. He didn't question why. If there's any place he would be, anybody be justified for questioning, well, God, you made, you, you made it clear that it's through this boy I'm going to be the father of many nations. You made it clear that you wanted him to grow up and have children, and now you're asking me to do this. These just don't fit together, my God. Therefore, something's wrong here. I'm going to hold back. He just obeyed whatever God told him to do. He trusted his God. He didn't do things for God. And when he offered up Isaac and he was ready to bring the knife down, the angel speaks to him and says, Stop. Now I know that you truly fear me. Now I know that I have a place in your life, in your heart, that's above everything, even this son that I gave to you. I know that I have that place. That's the foundation of your life now is me and not what I've given to you. Even the, what I gave to you to carry out my will, I know. And so that's what God had to do with the ministry with me. I had to put it on an altar and sacrifice it. But what happened then? The man who told me that I wasn't called then puts me in a position of ministry and look where I ended up today. But I had to die to my own ambition. I had to die to what I wanted to do. I had to put it on an altar. And it was messy. It wasn't one moment in time. It took a process of almost 10 years with me. What is in your life that has your ambition in it, that has you in it, mixed in with what God wants? Notice what he says. He says, it's those who do the will of my Father not those who do things for my Father. Because when you do things for Him, you get to choose what you do. And it's to carry out your purposes, even though they may be good. So what does Jesus go on to say? 
Many will say in me to that day, verse 22, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name, cast out demons in your name, and done many works in your name? And I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Wow. Jesus said, I mean, they called on his name. They did things in his name. And he says, I never knew you. I never had a relationship with you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. 1 John 3, 4 defines sin as lawlessness. The root of sin isn't what you do wrong. The root of sin is self saying, I get to do what I want to do. I don't care what God says. I don't care what anybody else says. I get to choose what I want to do. That's lawlessness. And that is sin. And Jesus says, depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Then he goes on to give an example of this. Verse 24. Therefore, because of this, Whoever hears these sayings of mine and does them, I will liken to a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain descended and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house and it did not fall for it was founded on the rock. But everyone who hears these sayings of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain descended and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on the house and it fell. And great was its fall. Same house. Same materials. Same design, same contractor, same storm. The difference between the house that stood and the house that fell was what it was built on, just as we've been talking about. And Jesus tells us here, in the kingdom of God, when everything gets shaken, what's going to allow your life to stand And what's not going to allow your life to stand if you build it on? Everyone who hears these words of mine and does them will be like the man who built his house on a rock and the storms came and beat against their life and blew against their life. Thunder and lightning came against their life. The ground may have shaken, but they stood strong through the storm. Not because of the materials that the house was built, but because of the, built, but the foundation that it was built on. And the foundation that it was built on is the Word of God not just being read, but the Word of God being the authority in our lives. And this is the point. This is the foundation of where we're going to go. This is what's lacking in the church today. This is what's lacking among our young people who are being thrown all kinds of confusing things out there to the point of being told there's no such thing as truth. That's what postmodernism is. There's, no, there's really no such thing as truth. The interesting thing I was thinking of this morning, what would happen if you lied to one of the professors that told you that? Would they be upset at you because you lied to them? That means you didn't tell them the... Well, there's no such thing as truth. And that's what our younger people are being taught, that there's no such thing as truth. It's whatever I think it ought to be. 
It's whatever I want it to be. Isn't that lawlessness? Isn't that lawlessness? Well, I mean, there's no right or wrong anymore. It's whatever, whatever seems right to me, and you have the right to whatever seems right to you. And so there's really, no, there's really no standard out there of what's right or wrong. It's whatever seems right to me. Isn't that lawlessness? Lawlessness means I'm not subject to anybody else's law but mine. I get to choose what's right and wrong for me. I get to do what I want to do, and I read my Bible, and I come to church, and I, I try to do the things that are right, but still somewhere inside I reserve the right to do what I want to do. Now notice this practice lawlessness. Practice lawlessness. So what we're going to look at, the foundation, it starts with this, the foundation for our lives. The foundation, as Christians, the foundation for the church must be the Word of God. Not, now carefully, not that we believe in the Word. It's what place does the Word of God have in your life? That's what we're going to begin to look at next time. And I'll just give you some questions to consider. There's a man I know, and he he does some things for me, and he doesn't go to church, but he's a faithful member of his church. And was talking to me and said, you know, we're supposed to read the verses for the day in our church. And my wife said to the pastor, who's a temporary pastor, you know, well, I, I can't read this. This, is, this sounds like some conservative Tea Party pr- principle, which was probably, you know, if a man doesn't eat, he doesn't, doesn't work, he doesn't eat, something like that, or take care of your family. It was something out of uh, 1 Timothy, I think it was. And, and she said to the pastor, I can't read this. This is just, this is just conservative hogwash. And the pastor said this to her. He says, don't worry about it. You just read what you're supposed to read. I'll correct it in the message. I wanted to say, why do you go to church? I mean, what's the purpose in going? And, you know, if, you're, if you have friends there that you get to meet and you get to socialize, well, just have some social gathering. But why do you bother to read the Scripture? What does it mean to you? And that's what I want to leave you with this morning and myself with, because these are questions that I'm seriously asking myself, not just what do I want it to be, what is the evidence in my life of what the Word does? And I'm going to give you these questions, and then we'll, we'll close quickly with these, and then we'll pick up here next time. Is the Word, which is what's being taught out there to our young people, it's just an old fable with outdated ideas. It's nice to read for history or literature, when I was in college, the college I went to, we had a course on, on, on modern civilization, and we had to read parts of the Bible. But we read parts of the Bible as, as, long, as, as well as other pieces of literature. So to many in the world today, the Bible is just a piece of literature, or it's fables. And, and most of us, I suspect, unless it may be some in our younger generation here, most of us wouldn't look at it that way. We know, well, what's well, the Word of God? Okay, it's the Word of God, but what does that mean to me? Let me give you some other questions, some other things it can be. Is it an old fable of outdated ideas? Or is it, is it, a, is it a book of encouragement and hope that you read, to, read or you listen to when you have a need? So when I'm discouraged and down, I open my Bible and I find those verses that are going to encourage me. 
Or when, I, when I'm afraid, I pull out verses that, 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 that will help me not forget. In other words, I'm using the Bible as a reference tool to help me with whatever my need is, like an encyclopedia. So when I'm struggling with something or I, I need to be encouraged, I pull it off the shelf, I pull it out, I read it, and I'm using it to encourage. And there's nothing wrong with you having the Word of God encourage you. But is that what place it has in your life? Is that what place it has in your life? Or, and this is where many of us are, I think, is it a book that we agree with? We read it and say, boy, that's good. I needed to hear that. Yes. Boy, that's right on. Praise God, that's right on. And we'll look at this at some point. That's called mental assent. That means I mentally agree with it. I read it. It makes sense to me. I put myself in agreement with it. And therefore, I think that therefore I believe the Bible. But agreeing with it isn't believing it. I was a philosophy major in college. And there were some philosophies I read. I agreed with them. But they never affected my life, praise God. The question is, what impact does this word have on your life? Or is it the authority in your life through which you filter what truth is? I'm going to leave you there because we're going to pick up here next week. But I wanted to give you those questions to kind of consider. I'm going to start posting these notes on our website. I do that with a Wednesday night and we're setting up a page to post these notes because this is important. We're talking about laying the foundation of your life. And of course, our foundations are already laid, so we need to dig some things up and look at the foundation and examine it because the foundation you're building your life on will determine what's going to happen in your life when things begin to shake. And some of you are already being shaken now. And you're, you're not doing well because your foundation is based on other things other than just the Word of God. Let's pray. Father, we come to you again as a Father that loves us. And things may look very overwhelming right now. Even things we've heard this morning may seem very overwhelming to us. But we trust you. We trust that you love us. We trust that you're our Father. And we trust that because you're our Father who loves us, you are working in our lives and you want to work in our lives. And so we open our lives to you today and give you permission to look at every area of our life and bring anything up before us and help us to examine through this week what we're building our own lives on, to look at our own lives, to look at the fruit of our lives, peace, joy, whether those things are fruit in our lives or not, and then check the foundation and just give you permission to come into our lives at that level and begin to strengthen us and to shore us up. And for that grace, we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, we close this.